Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at Pod. This is our final episode with Professor Matthew Rothis Moser on Dante's Divine Comedy. We are finally in paradise, friends, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. We are back for our final round of Dante with Professor Matthew Rothis Moser uh, from Pacific Azusa. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Good to be here. Third time's the charm, right? And now, finally, we are in paradise, which is exciting but also somewhat confusing at certain points. <laughs> That's exactly so, right. <laughs> so uh, you are here to help us. You are our guide, along with Beatrice and St. Bernard, to help us through Dante's vision of heaven. Those of you who are tuning in and you're confused, you should definitely stop listening to this episode and go back and listen to episode uh, 30 and 31. I think, I think that's right. Uh, don't quote me on that. But I have two previous episodes with Professor Moser on the Divine Comedy. And so this is our final, our final go, our final attempt at Dante. Yeah. So with that out of the way, let's just dive right in. So the first question that I have is, you know, just kind of a big picture question. Like, what are the main themes of paradise? And... I guess I would invite you to answer that question in line with how we treated it in previous episodes. So, for example, you know, it sort of seemed like the main theme of Inferno is that sin is is ugly. And the main theme of purgatory was that, you know, sin wounds us and we need we need to be healed. But that healing can be very painful, but in a transformative way. But we are through hell and purgatory now and in paradise. So what is the main theme of paradise? Well, I think the main theme for for readers is what the heck is going on here? That seems to be the main theme of the readerly experience of paradise. Uh, and it, it's really hard to kind of overstate just how difficult paradise is in comparison with Inferno and and Purgatorio, you have a kind of simplicity and straightforwardness with Inferno and Purgatorio. And yeah, they open up into these like deeper and richer themes and poetic experimentation. Uh, but Paradiso like wears that difficulty and that richness and complexity just on its its surface. So coming into Paradiso, you have so many hurdles that you have to have to get over just to to get the the basic gist down um but but i think the main theme of of paradise is announced in the opening lines uh, of paradiso one 
Dante says, the glory of him who moves all things pervades the universe and shines in one part more and in another less. And I think that's that's the theme. That's the theme of the song. Uh, it's, it's divine glory. And then how does Dante the Pilgrim conform both intellectually and existentially, for lack of a better word, with that divine glory, with the divine ordering of, of creation? And then how does he invite us as readers to undergo that same kind of um, conformity uh, to, to divine glory. So it's, it's very different than Inferno and Purgatory, which is much more about the struggle and the journey of, of moral growth and, and transformation. And here Dante simply wants to, to celebrate the beauty of God, the glory of God that's distributed throughout the entire cosmic order, and then kind of dramatize how we become informed, quite literally informed by that divine form so that we can know it, but also I think praise it. So this Paradiso is much more lyrical than the other ones are. It's this interesting kind of hybrid of narrative and lyricism that create all of these challenges. Uh, especially compared to the other two. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess what's interesting to me is that, right, Inferno and Purgatory are really about us and sort of, on the one hand, what goes wrong with us, various mm -hmm. privations of the good, and then sort of what it would take for us to really be virtuous, to, to have well-ordered loves, but then in paradise, it shifts. It's not so much about us anymore. It's about God. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing is, that's sort of an impossible task, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Dante is kind of faced with the same trouble that the theologians face, right? Which mm -hmm. is that, well, we can't know God in his essence, right? <laughs> and we, we can't know him propositionally, right? So I can't write a treatise in which I explain God's essence to you in a way that like, I don't know, I could probably do that for like cat or human or something, but I can't do that for God. And so it looks like he set himself a kind of impossible task, right? To communicate things to human that are superhuman, right? And so in Canto 1, I think he's kind of exploring his predicament a little bit because he talks about oh, how... Yeah how he has to, well, in my translation, it's transhumanize, but yes. it's like a made up mm -hmm. word. So he has to trans transhumanize. He has to like become a different mm -hmm. kind of thing. And what he experiences or sees is beyond words. But then right. obviously he has to like put it back into words. It's a poem. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, I mean, it's almost like the poetic version of negative theology. <laughs> Except he does try to say very positive things. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, how... Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> I think there's, a, there's a lot going on in, in the first canto of Paradiso and that kind of build up to that transhumanized language. I mean, this is one of the, the challenges that Dante has in Paradiso and, and a lot of people have taken it up since. How do you make goodness and perfection interesting and not boring. Mm -hmm. um, and 
And so much of what Dante has to do in Paradise is that I think makes the goodness of his project so so interesting and so fascinating is he has to, as a poet, as an artist, he has to stretch language in a way that he hasn't had to before. I think the closest we've come to Dante kind of coming up against the, the limits of his poetic ability is when he sees Satan at the end of Inferno. And he has this kind of ineffability topos where where he says, I can't even put into words just how grisly and 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 awful the the sight of the lowest ring of hell is. But that's just one canto <laughs> in mm -hmm. Inferno. And here it's 33 cantos where he's having to stretch language so far. And um and I think what's so interesting about Paradiso is how he he maps his need to stretch language and stretch concept and stretch understanding with the kind of ongoing formation of his identity, his person as as the pilgrim. That there's this equal um, or this this reciprocal relationship between his character growth and the conformity of his mind and his vision and his poetic tack. tack. Uh, and so there's, there's this great symmetry between Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet. It's really here in Paradiso that you see those two kind of finally coming together. In Inferno and Purgatorio, he's, there's been a distance, a gap between the, the poet and the pilgrim, and here we see them finally coming together. And it, it starts even earlier in Canto One where he he shifts from invoking the muses like he does at the beginning of inferno and purgatorio to now he also invokes apollo he needs both of of the mountains in classical mythology so he needs not just the muses of poetry but he actually needs the god of poetry mm -hmm. who of course in in his kind of context, Apollo is a, a kind of pagan image of Christ. So he's recruiting more resources. And then he does this, he invokes the, the mythic story of Marseilles um, in, in lines 19 and following. He invokes Apollo and then he says, enter my breast and breathe in me as when you drew Marseilles out from the sheathing of his limbs. O oh, holy power, if you but lend me of yourself enough that I may show the mere shadow of the blessed kingdom stamped within my mind. And he goes on. And that story is, is the story of, of Marseilles uh, who challenges Apollo to, I don't know, like a, a battle of the bands, essentially. Uh, and, and Apollo flays him alive for his presumption like he pulls him out of his skin and this is an image of of poetic inspiration that now marseille is, is his skin is um the kind of perfect vessel for apollo the god of poetry to to infuse and quite literally inspire and that's the image that dante starts off uh the paradiso with is him being him being pulled out of his skin, this kind of ecstasy, uh, so that he can be a kind of perfect vessel for for the god, not just the muses of poetry, but the god to actually 
speak through. It's a really fascinating and deeply disturbing image to start off this kind of sacred, sacred poem with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, it's a classic Dante move because he wants to take like some some classical myth or story and, and Christianize it. But on the other hand, I think it makes sense that he would want to draw on something that, you know, so vividly mm-hmm. <laughs> brings out the fact that he has to get outside of himself, that he has to maybe even in a way leave all earthly things behind, right? Including flesh. That now we're really in a spiritual realm. But Mm -hmm. also this idea that he has to become like a vessel, right? Mm -hmm. To receive grace. Because it kind of seems to me like one one of the main themes of this poem is the extent to which what we are able to see is dependent on our ability to receive grace. I mean, the emphasis on receptivity in this, I I mean, is really, I don't even, I mean, I hesitate even to say emphasis because it's almost like the whole thing at this point is about about being filled up or or receiving, Mm -hmm. right, God. And that kind of, I mean, I was sort of thinking as I was looking over this, again, uh, you know, in terms of preparing for this podcast, thinking about, well, you know, in some sense, the poem still has to be about us just because, just because of the reasons that I've already stated, like he can't mm-hmm. actually write a poem about the essence of God. Absolutely. <laughs> can't, right. can't in the moment that. he tries to, the poem ends. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We'll it would be a bad yeah. poem anyway. So in mm-hmm. some sense, it's still about us and I think maybe something that I'm like sort of trying to settle on is the idea that it's about what it's like for us to rest in the good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So not mm-hmm. to not to deviate from it or to struggle to possess it, but to just rest in it, yes. to dwell in it, to possess it, right? Yeah. Where again, it's more—it's just a receptive thing at that point, right? Yeah, it—it it really is. I mean, the work is kind of behind him at this point. I think you could read Inferno and, and Purgatorio as the process of of him being pulled out of himself mm-hmm. uh, through that kind of moral purgation, and and now we don't so much have—I I think this is Heather Webb's. Uh, argument we we don't so much have a continuation of the journey i mean he is still making his way towards towards god but it's not the kind of labor that he's had to do in inferno and and in uh, purgatorio i mean here he he basically transcends the heavens simply by kind of floating upwards by his natural disposition uh each movement from from one heaven to the next heaven often involves him looking in Beatrice's eyes and being kind of transported uh, by by her divine beauty or or God's beauty shining through her. And so it's it's almost like uh, Paradiso is the kind of 
rather than a journey and a struggle and a labor. It's a it's an ongoing deepening and expansion of Dante's receptivity of the vision of God that that's shining everywhere mm-hmm. uh, in in the heavens. But he has to his vision has to be uh, made ready. Uh, his 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 pupils need to expand to take in more of the divine brilliance. His mind needs to expand to be more receptive to uh, to to divine truth. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely part of the 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 theological and philosophical agenda of of this poem. And a lot of that's going to involve this transformation, right? This transhumanize that you that you mentioned there. There's it's this great image where where Dante looks at Beatrice. And it's the first time that he's looking at Beatrice in all of Paradiso. And Beatrice isn't looking back at him. She's looking up towards the heaven of heavens where God dwells, right? The Empyrean. And by looking at her, he invokes another kind of mythic story of of Glaucus, who eats this, I don't know, magical seaweed. I don't, I, I don't quite understand it. And he becomes, he becomes um, a, a, a part of the the, the divine. He, he becomes one with with uh, the divinities. He becomes consort to to the gods, and that's the effect that Dante has looking at Beatrice. Uh, he becomes, in some sense, right there, uh, 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 consort of of the gods. That is the communion of saints. Even though he won't see the communion of saints in its fullness until much later, he's already being made ready in the first canto um, to to be united with those people who are united to God. And it's fascinating that it happens when he looks at Beatrice. It's this anagogical quality of beauty uh, that's so important to to Paradiso, right? Beauty isn't something that's just kind of sentimental, uh, but it is something that elevates our minds and our and our vision and our desires, ordering them to to God. Um, beauty makes us receptive to God in a lot of ways. Okay, yeah, good. So, because I was going to ask about beauty, but you just went there, so... So thank you. But how can you explain theologically why he thinks that beauty plays this role of bringing us up to God? How how does beauty serve in the economy of divine intimacy? Yeah, I I think that I think that Dante is is well aware of some of the the theological discussions of of beauty that are happening happening among among the Dominicans and the Franciscans of of his day, and how how beauty is what kind of gains grabs our our delight and our desire and orders it towards transcendence. Um, one of the the final people that that Dante encounters in Paradiso is Bernard of Clairvaux, and Bernard has this this treatise called On Consideration, which is all about this kind of contemplative vision of the ordering of the of the heavens and how the beauty and the symmetry 
of, of the heavens and of creation um, image and in a sense kind of perform the God's will and God's intentional, beautiful, harmonious ordering of creation. And so as we gaze upon created beauty, that is where the human contemplative eye and the divine contemplative eye kind of meet. So Dante's been doing it the whole time. Uh, since he arrived in Purgatorio, he would talk about the stars as, um, as, as uh, wheeling around us that's meant to draw our attention and, and gaze us upwards. That's, what, that's why the inferno being underground is, is such a horror because it cuts people off from the possibility of beauty, the possibility of this, this anagogical looking upwards towards, towards God. And I, I think Dante's, Dante is adding to building on some of these theological considerations of beauty and he's really stretching them as his interest in in poetry and obviously the beauty of poetry but also his past as as a love poet i think he's really trying to to take themes of desire and beauty and contemplation and and the praise of the beloved and we see him purifying and elevating those poetic tropes theologically and spiritually throughout Paradiso. So romantic lyric, erotic lyric gets kind of reordered through Beatrice towards, towards God. And so I think he is taking theology and philosophy, but also his poetic tradition and allowing them to, to be in conversation with each other in some really interesting and often controversial ways. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a clue in Canto One when he is gazing at Beatrice, and it's not the thing that grabs him isn't her, you know, it's not her physical beauty. It's the fact that she's entranced, right? She herself is in a state of ecstasy or or being entranced, however you mm -hmm. want to cash that out, because because she is contemplating, right? She's, I mean, she's contemplating the eternal spheres, and yes. and that is what is that that is the occasion of this transhumanization <laughs> in Dante, mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he's gazing on her contemplative ecstasy. I'm not sure exactly what I want to say about that, but it seems like whatever it is that he's attracted to there, it's not the same <laughs> as it was before. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think all of Dante's treatments of, of Beatrice have this kind of vaguely mystical, theological, contemplative aspect to them. Yeah. Um, but here he's very explicit. I mean, he's explicit that Beatrice friend zones him consistently, right? There's there's a clear delineation. Like there's mm -hmm. there's no romantic stuff going on here. Dante, she calls him brother uh, yeah. more times than you can really count. Um, but but he does still want to 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 talk about her her beauty, and he always focuses on her eyes and her smile. And it's gazing at those things that elevate him up higher and higher in the heavens towards God. And that's, a, that's an idea that's uh, 
you can find that in uh, Dante's philosophical text, the Convivio, the banquet, where he talks about the, the eyes and the smile being the balcony of the soul. And the smile being, I think this is a line in, in Paradiso, uh, the, the coruscation of the soul's delight. So what he sees in her beauty and what captures him is, is kind of like Marseilles again, the inside being pulled out, right? He, he sees her kind of spiritual meaning, her, her divine significance, and I, I use that term pointedly, um, her divine significance as, as manifested in and through her, her beauty. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, uh, sorry, just to ask another theological question. I mean, from Dante's perspective, at least insofar as we can tell from this poem, I guess maybe the thing that I'm wondering is the relationship between truth and beauty, because we mm -hmm. know that the good, the ultimate good that one possesses in heaven is the ultimate good of contemplation, right? So mm -hmm. you have this kind of joyful possession of truth itself or the fullness of truth because you possess through your vision um, the fullness mm -hmm. of being at last. Mm -hmm. And that is desirable, right? That That is desirable. That is good. Where, where does beauty enter into the picture? If you're just thinking in terms of the contemplative vision that is, you know, the attitude. Yeah, I, I think that as a, as a poet and as a theologically and philosophically inclined poet, Dante is, is aware that, that beauty is tied to desire and that desire is tied to, to contemplation and that contemplation, um, is it's it, it's from the root of the or it's from the same root as the word desire and so beauty is absolutely the way that um that transcendent beauty uh the the intellectual light of of god and and the glory of god it beauty is the way that um is the way that uh, that transcendent fullness, the plenitude of God's glory, is is seen and recognized or signified, maybe would be the better the better word, uh, in the in the created world, um, in in God's creation. Uh, and it reminds me in in my classes, I've just been doing the end of confessions with my my first year students, and so we're looking at uh, confessions nine and confessions ten where Augustine is doing all this contemplative stuff. And he talks about how he's searching for God in creation. And he says uh, that, that creation's response is, uh, we are not God, look higher. But that their, their testimony of God's presence in them was their beauty. And I think that Dante, as a reader of Augustine, uh, is, is probably doing something similar. To, mm -hmm. to that, that creation speaks the divine, divine truth and divine glory in and through, um, in and through its created beauties. And that might be why the, the focus of Paradiso, why Dante chooses to use the word glory, because you do have this idea of something not self-contained within itself, but something that has splendor, that's, that's shooting outward, uh, and so can be both received in creation's 
um, creation's beautiful forms, harmonious forms, um, but it can also be perceived and mm -hmm. it can draw us upward anagogically. Yeah. So radiance and light are absolutely are everywhere in, in yes. this part of the poem. Um, yeah. And I take that to be related. Okay. Can we just go over the architecture of heaven? Because I yes. think that this is, you know, where the confusion comes in. I mean, so one thing that I think is possibly surprising for people is that heaven is a hierarchy. So there, there's a hierarchy of sacred spheres. And so that that might be confusing from, from a certain perspective because you're like, well, it's the highest good. Now is there a hierarchy within the highest good? Like, I don't really know right. how to think about that. And then there seems to be this idea corresponding to this of, I don't know how else to put it other than like different degrees of beatitude. So, so like, depending where you are, like what sphere you're in. So it's sort of like Inferno and Purgatorio in that along the way, Dante just meets people that sort of represent that sphere, but you, you might have thought heaven wouldn't be like that, <laughs> you know, like it would just be a big garden yeah. party or something. But we've had a garden party in Inferno 4, right, among the uh, among those in Limbo. Limbo's That's our garden true. party. That's true. <laughs> the best garden party is in hell. So, so, so there's this idea of different degrees of beatitude, which is sort of worth mentioning and asking for an explanation. And then mm -hmm. it sort of seems like these different degrees of beatitude track differences in our capacity to delight or like to receive the good. So it's almost these people can only handle so much beauty, <laughs> right? Yes. That that sort of wants explanation of some kind. And what, what I find interesting about the whole thing is that there's a hierarchy, but there's no envy. So like, Nobody's like looking up and being like, man, I wish I were with the contemplatives. Like, why am I stuck down mm -hmm. here? You know? Yeah. So that was a long question yeah. with many parts. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. That's great. That's super important. And this is how the episode turns into another two hour one. Uh, I'm <laughs> just trying to un unpack all of this. Uh, so just basically, just so, so we all have the same framework. Uh, Dante is using... Uh, what what we would call the Ptolemaic universe, right? Where where it's a terra-centric universe rather than a heliocentric universe. So you have Earth at its center, and then it's surrounded by nine concentric but ever larger spheres that are the different stars. The moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then the realm of the fixed stars or the constellations, uh, and then something called the prima mobile, the first moved, is where Dante's at maybe is most Aristotelian talking about this. And then the 10th heaven is in a sense, the heaven of heavens. It's, it's the Empyrean, it's outside of time and space. And that's where God dwells with all of the saints. And so all of the cosmos is within the Empyrean in, in some ways. The Empyrean embraces all of created reality. So that's the basic structure. And so Dante's movement is he looks at Beatrice's pretty eyes 
and he just kind of gradually floats his way up until he goes outside of time and space altogether into the very mind of God. And maybe the closest theological text that kind of maps onto all of this is Bonaventure's um, Journey of the Mind into God, uh, which, is, which is a great text. Um, so that's yeah. the basic structure of, yeah, of there's the, a, the Paradiso. There's a weird Franciscan turn to me <laughs> by yes. the time you get to paradise i'm like what's all this franciscan stuff in here i i love it this is this is why it's my favorite part of the comedy i love the franciscan turn <laughs> i i just will remain indifferent it's just notable you know it's noteworthy i i know the controversial statement i just made but <laughs> but then also like for every sphere there is like a uh, a hierarchy of angels, you know? So you've got the yep. angels and the archangels and the principalities and the powers and the virtues and the dominions and the thrones and the cherubim and the seraphim. I take yes. it the seraphim are in the Empyrean, yes, uh, no? I, I, I think that they are associated with the prima mobile. Oh, okay. Because oh, that's all, right, because they're circling yeah. around, God. got it. Because they're circling, yeah. Right. So, and, so the whole idea is that Dante's cosmos, all of the spheres are moving, and the closer they get to the Empyrean, the faster they're moving. So you ha almost have to kind of read Dante's cosmos backwards. The prima mobile that we'll get to last is actually the beginning of creation. It's where time, um, time and, and creation kind of begin, and it's spinning around. I like to think of, of uh, Dante's vision of the cosmos is like a happy dog that's spinning around with joy uh, when you get home from a long vacation. Just the whole cosmos is spinning with delight. And um, uh, and the closer you get to Earth, the more sluggish <laughs> the, the heavenly spheres are. Uh, so as Dante is ascending towards the Empyrean, the closer and closer he's getting to the roots of creation, the the more he is attuning himself with with the joy and the goodness and the fullness of of what it means for God to create the world and say it is it is good. Well, aren't they also spheres because circular motion is per perfect yes. for Aristotle? Yes. Yeah, because yes. it's like always complete in itself. It's right. not like it's not like developing or on the way, but is I don't know. It's it's telos is always realized or something. Yeah, and that's why uh, Paradiso is is a better mirror to Inferno, which has the rings, mm -hmm. um, rather than Purgatorio, which is this kind of spiral upward mm -hmm. up the mountain. Yeah, um, it's like the long slog. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But one of the great things, this is a, a quick aside, is to to read Inferno. And as you read Paradiso, you start to realize, oh man, the entire, the entire structure of Inferno is a kind of ripoff or parody of the fullness and the goodness and the glory of Paradiso. Yeah, right? So but... even the, the, the rings and the frozen lake at the bottom of hell is this Augustinian inverse yeah. of yeah of but it has parody, to be so. it has, it to, has be. to be yeah absolutely yeah because absolutely. the only thing that 
evil can be, right, is a piss poor imitation of the good. Yes, I, I think that's a that's the technical theological language of it. It's piss yes, poor. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so Dante's cosmos this is where Dante gets very confusing um, because of the hierarchy question that that you asked. Because uh -huh. as Dante goes through these different realms, he meets people who are fittingly or appropriately showing up where they do. So uh -huh. the first person Dante meets in paradise is uh, a nun named Bacarda, uh, who's my favorite character in all of uh, the comedy. Why is she, she your is, favorite? What? Yeah, why? Uh, her theology is what I aspire my theology to be. Uh, as as somebody whose personal vice is envy, the fact that she's not envious mm. and she can say, um, in God's will is our peace, I I aspire to be able to say that in any kind yeah. of truthful way. So yeah, that's why she's my favorite. Uh, but Picarda shows up on the moon because Picarda broke her vows as a nun. So there's something inconstant about her character and so of course she shows up in the moon which is inconstant i think i heard that in romeo or juliet somewhere one of the things that that his encounter dante's encounter with picarda forces him to ask this is in canto four is he asks beatrice or beatrice reads his mind and says you want to know if plato is right and if every soul returns to their star when they die mm -hmm. and beatrice says no they don't Everybody that you will see in the first 29 cantos of Paradiso, they all reside with God in the Empyrean. So heaven isn't a hierarchy, but they appear for your sake, Dante, because you're still this kind of ignorant, ignorant guy, and you can't take the full, like we can't automatically go from from Purgatorio to the Empyrean. We have to be initiated into this truth. And so the, the souls appear to Dante in regions that are fitting, and this is another way that beauty comes into it. The, the fittingness or the, the conveniencia of Picarda showing up where she does is because the inconstancy of the moon fits with the inconstancy of her of her soul but she's there for dante's sake and then after dante learns his little lesson right she'll she'll um she, she won't be there uh in in the circle of the moon anymore so the vast majority of paradiso the poem is in a sense a kind of performance art on behalf of the saints for dante's benefit Dante doesn't actually see paradise in any kind of true, true way, you know, air quotes around true, until Canto 30. And then it's when he's in the Empyrean and he sees this is where all of the souls are. And they're arranged in this, this celestial rose in a kind of stadium that, that is open up to the contemplative, um, contemplative enjoyment of God. And so that's one of the really hard things about reading paradise is you have to, you have to remember, okay, these people are showing up 
to talk to Dante for Dante's benefit, where they're showing up is appropriate to them, but they're not, it's not like hell. They're not assigned to these fears eternally. Mm-hmm. They are all in the immediate presence of God outside of time and space. Okay. So when we talk about this notion of fittingness, right? Yeah. So it's not just, so it's instrumental for Dante and that's important, Absolutely. but it's not, yeah. it's not just instrumental. It really is fitting with the way things are that it's it should not be, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. That it should be, well, lots of instrumental things aren't arbitrary, but what I'm trying to say is that it's also fitting that the people are experiencing the sort of beatitude they're experiencing. So mm-hmm. unless I misunderstand you, in which case, please correct no, me. No, I think that's right. So we still have the idea of different degrees of beatitude, right? Because it, mm-hmm. it really is fitting to her that she have this vision right mm-hmm. and and that these other people have this different vision i mean in reality yeah. they're all in the empyrean right. but they're maybe another way of putting it is like the beatific vision isn't the same for everyone it's true for dante yeah yeah, yeah. uh and not to invoke another franciscan on on the podcast but so bonaventure them off. yeah okay all right uh bonaventure none no one partakes of God in the absolute sense, but all partake of God absolutely in respect of themselves. Yeah. So Picarda is perfected as Picarda, mm-hmm. but Picarda is not Mary. And right. th- that's part of the, both the, the mystery, but also the, the beauty and the glory of God's creation as Dante sees it. Uh, so right. Picarda's capacity is perfectly realized, but her capacity is going to be different um, from, yeah, from find, another souls. Yeah. So I find this so interesting because, I mean, I find it interesting on the level of philosophy. I also find it interesting theologically, mm-hmm. but just on the level of philosophy, it's like, you know, we know that the classical view is that our ability to live well and enjoy the good depends on our vision. Right. And yes. mm-hmm. we, we can have clouded vision. We cannot see things that we should see. And so, you know, a um, huge part of what it is to grow in, in the moral life is to come to have a proper vision of things, right? Of things, of other yes. people, of, you know, what's really worthy of your attention, et cetera. But it's, it's interesting to think that this is still determinative, even, mm-hmm. even in paradise, right? right? Because there it's like your capacity to see and delight in God is still dependent on your capacity to receive him, right? right? And some people just have a greater capacity for mm-hmm. that good than others. Yeah. I, I, it's worth thinking about yes. that for a long time. It, um, it is. And recalling our, our previous conversation, uh, I have found that it's this question where I have the most trouble as a teacher between Catholic readers and Protestant readers 
of the oh, really? is, mm -hmm. is this idea of created capacities. Uh, oh, yeah. This is far, far more difficult than, hey, do we need purgation after we die? It's this question. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't really have a point uh, with that comment other than just to, to note it. I find this to be one of the hardest pills for, for my Protestant and evangelical students to, to swallow with Dante. What, what uh, is there? It's so counter. It's just because they don't have the theology of grace that kind of habituates you into thinking of potence, you know, what, what's the, what's the hindrance for them? I do think some of it is perhaps uh, a a fairly flat reading of the priesthood of all believers, mm -hmm. and in 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 their minds that kind of becomes a, a clear statement of oh we're all we all basically have the same calling mm -hmm. to God, uh, so very much a kind of rallying point of of Reformation theology uh, that might be that might be part of it, but part of it might might simply be because uh, they're catechized into a very American democratic ideal, even in their spirituality, even in their religiosity. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is a deeply undemocratic vision yeah. <laughs> that Dante has yeah. here. Um, and so my, my strategy is, you don't have to agree with Dante, but let him destabilize some of your categories a bit. Just let him let him make you a little uncomfortable, and then we look at Dante's question to Picarda in Canto Three. I mean, he he gets how um, how hard this is, and he says, "Wouldn't you rather be higher up?" And she says, mm -hmm. "This is around line seventy, brother." Again, the the consistent theme of friend zoning, Dante. Uh, brother, the power of love subdues our will so that we long only for what we have and thirst for nothing else. If we desired to be more exalted, our desires would be discordant with God's will, which assigns us to this place. That, as you will see, would not benefit these or would not befit these circles if to be ruled by love is here required. And if you consider well the nature of that love. Um, Therefore, yeah. our rank from height to height throughout this kingdom pleases all the kingdom as it delights the king who wills us to his will and in his will is our peace. Yeah, I mean, I can understand just a philosophical confusion about that. So like, mm -hmm. so if you um, read Aquinas on, I mean, he, he, he has discussions of the beatific vision in different places, but one of them is in the so-called treatise on happiness which is in the Prima Secundae, like question one through five, I think. And he basically says, this is like Aquinas trying to argue that only God can be our happiness and it could be no created thing. And so basically he's like, okay, so you have intellect and will. And so you have this capacity, you have these capacities that reach out into the infinite. And so no created thing can like fully right. satisfy these rational capacities, right? It would, it would, ha it would have to, it, it would, it would have to only sort of being itself, right? Or truth itself and only goodness itself could satisfy a creature with intellect and will. So mm -hmm. the whole argument 
is like based on this idea that because you have certain capacities, you have certain yearnings or longings, which can only be satisfied by God. So anything that falls short of God, right, is going to leave you dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. So now if I think about this Picarda, right, she's in a sense like you'd want to say, well, she's not fully satisfied, right? So it's like she doesn't thirst more, but there's more there for her. For her right. to thirst yes. for or something. So yeah. you might just feel intellectually confused at that point. But if you sort of switch from that framework to thinking about other times when Aquinas is talking about beatific vision in the context of his discussion of charity, which he calls friendship with God, I mean, it's sort of easier to understand how some people can be like more intimately united to God than other people. That's sort of natural, but it's, it's also sometimes hard for me to fit those two together. I think that, I don't know that Dante sees a, a tension there um, because of, of just his understanding of, of finitude and, and creation. He seems, he seems quite comfortable with, with the idea that we are are brought into existence with a kind of spiritual particularity um, uh, of of capacity, and that is part of both the the mystery of divine will, uh, but it's also part of the mystery of of the relationship between the infinite and and the finite. God could not create anything that is finite that could have an infinite capacity. Um, because then it would exceed finitude, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that I think that Dante is quite it, it is much more concerned with in in his Paradiso much more concerned with let's make sure that we depict people at peace, people at rest, people who are satisfied, whose capacity can't fill one more can't fit one more drop of of the divine glory. Uh, they, they have, they are full. Mm -hmm. And so they have, so their needs are satisfied, right? They no longer need, they're not lacking anything uh, mm -hmm. with, within them. And that's part of the, the, the beauty of the created order for Dante. And of course, even. Yeah, okay. So there the idea is like, this is just as intimate with God as I'm, as it gets for me. Right. Absolutely. And so right. like, yeah. and so like I'm satisfied, but, but there are people for whom a deeper intimacy is fitting. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they would not be satisfied at my level, but like I'm satisfied Absolutely. with this. Today is an exciting new day at Sacred and Profane Love because we have our first ever sponsor, the Classical Learning Test. Some of you may already be familiar with what the Classical Learning Test is doing, but if you're not familiar, I want to tell you about it because I think it's pretty amazing. The Classical Learning Test is challenging the College Board. The College Board is the so-called not-for-profit that owns the AP exams, the PSAT, and of course, the SAT. And it's an alternative assessment. The reality is that standardized testing drives curriculum. What gets taught gets tested. 
the College Board focuses on bland informational texts, while the classical learning texts put your student in front of the authors that we love and promote here at Sacred and Profane Love. For example, in their author bank, you will find Dante and also Flannery O'Connor, among many others. If you have a son or daughter that is in the 10th or 11th grade, they can register for the June 19th classical learning test, and they can take it from home via remote proctoring, so you don't have to drive them to a testing site. They will get their score back within a week, and then they can send those scores to more than 200 partner colleges, and they can also send their scores to colleges that the CLT is not currently partnered with, for example, Harvard, but who will also consider the CLT as a supplemental part of the application. So I hope that you will check out the classical learning test. You can find them online at cltexam.com. And I should also say that the CLT runs their own podcast, which I listen to regularly. And they also have an amazing podcast that I listen to regularly called Anchored. So yeah. let me, this, this brings me into my next question, which is okay. my next question about the architecture of heaven. So okay. you have gone, you know, the spheres and how they correspond to the Ptolemaic, you know, uh, universe. But then I don't think we've talked about who's in them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so on the moon, we have the breaker of vows. Yes. On Mercury. Being we constant. Have, yes. Yeah. On Mercury, we have the lovers of glory. On Venus, yeah. we just have lovers on the sun, the sun, we have theologians. And then above them are the martyrs and the crusaders. Above them are the righteous rulers. Then above them are the contemplatives. And then there's an order called the triumph of Christ. Sorry, I'm just looking from my lovely music. Right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> it's just like my Dante Bible. Then the triumph of Christ and then the nine orders of angels. So I guess like one of my questions is just... Why are, why is the, why, why does the hierarchy fall out this way? Cause like, like I'm so confused, like why the theologians are where they are, for example, you know, like why are the righteous rulers above the theologians? I don't get it. Somebody help me. <laughs> <laughs> are, are they saying that like, cause I would have. I don't know. I feel like if I had made heaven, it would look slightly different. <laughs> no, yeah. I didn't make heaven, but... Yeah. Theologians seem to be getting short shrift is really what I'm saying. Well, I've, I've met some theologians in my time, and, and this seems a little ambitious, frankly, all, already. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he's not praising them enough. He might be uh, praising them too much yeah. here. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's so many different ways that people have tried to solve the, the structural questions of Paradiso. So some people have read it as uh, based on what Dante does in Convivio, that each of the heavens is associated with another one of the liberal arts. And he mm -hmm. pairs the, the souls there with the progression of the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's a... That's an idea. Some people have tried to associate with with different different virtues. Um, mm. So so the the theologians would be the first of the uh, kind of corresponding with the cardinal virtues. 
what would the theologians be on this view? Let's see. So the contemplatives would be temperance. The rulers would be justice. The the martyrs and crusaders would be fortitude. fortitude. And so the theologians would be prudence, which again, doesn't seem to... No, match. that doesn't seem right uh, at all. But, but these are just... I don't want my theologians to be prudent. Just let them have Sophia. Yeah, okay. So, Maybe it's just, yeah. So, so that's actually an interesting point. Uh, I, I think my read of why the theologians are where they are is that I see the, the circle of the sun and the theologians or, or, or the, the um, sages as almost like another, like is crossing a thresh, threshold into the, um, into the post-solar heavens, right? So there's in Dante's kind of medieval mind, like the heavens that are beneath the sun still have the shadow of the earth on them. And then you get to the sun and beyond that, you get into a kind of, yeah. um, I don't know what the, the right word would be. And so I, I think there is a threshold that's being crossed here with, with the theologians and the shapes that you see among the theologians, right? They gather in circles, which are images, I think, anticipations of Dante's vision of God as these kind of three circles. And he sees three circles of like dancing souls. Um, and so I think there is this kind of, there's the suggestion in Dante's depiction of these spheres of it's via theology that we are, theology is a kind of entryway into the, the more contemplative part of, of paradise that is in, in more distinct ways imaging the, the, the peace and the peacefulness and the eternity of, of heaven. And so that's how I would kind of, that's how I would read his positioning of them. Okay. I am sure there are more educated listeners uh, who would be glad to, to critique that read, but that's, mm -hmm. that's my take on it at least. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. Okay. So now I want to move on to my third round of like pretty general questions. And that is okay. about, these are questions about Beatrice. So okay. Beatrice is now Dante's guide, right? But then she disappears. I think it's in Canto mm -hmm. 30 and all of a sudden it's it Bernard, which sort of like the first time I read it, I was like, what? <laughs> what a disappointing moment <laughs> for Dante I, and the reader. No, I just was very, I was not expecting that. So I guess I just, I just would like to ask some really general questions. And I just have super specific questions. Like, why can she read his mind? So, somebody help me out here. Why is it that Beatrice can read Dante's mind? And what is the point of that? Yeah, and why can she do it, but Picarda can't, right? The deeper Dante goes into heaven, everybody starts reading his mind, but his first couple of times there's not. And so that's, again, a kind of reinforcement of, of the idea that the sun kind of crosses a, a kind of boundary mm -hmm. line, like something changes the dynamic. So I think the idea is the, the, soul, the, the solar and post-solar souls are their contemplative vision of God is so clear that 
they don't just see God, but they see all things in God. And so one of the kind of narrative ways that that gets, that theological idea gets translated in the poem is they can read Dante's mind, which would make sense if in a very kind of Augustinian line, God is more in, inward than, than our inmost, than those who are perfectly united to God, those who, who contemplatively know God might be able to um, participate in God's own knowing, God's own knowing of Dante. Um, so that might be something of what he's, he's doing there. Uh, but you know, it's a, it's a poem and, and there might also just be an aspect of, of Dante being like, well, this would be cool and different. So let's do this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think sometimes we're so sophisticated with this poem that we try to out sophisticate Dante. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, like Dante is also trying to just write something interesting yeah. and intriguing and, yeah. and mysterious. There's so, this like, yeah. There's this amazing footnote in Mark Musa's translation of Paradise in which he's like, go, so Dante's like talking about a lark. And so Musa's like, oh, why is it a lark? And he gives like this long explanation, you know, going about like medieval poetry. And then he's like, I don't know. Also, maybe he just saw a lark that day. Like sometimes he went outside. <laughs> I just could not stop laughing because, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he just saw a lark that day. Yeah, and you know, we might... It, that's such a great line. I, I knew exactly which footnote you were going to talk about the moment you brought that up, because it's such a <laughs> it's such an iconic footnote. It's hilarious. Because, you know, we, we think about... We think about works of genius being written in these kind of rarefied airs. But, like, Dante was exiled. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was wandering. Mm -hmm. um, he... He... This is not a guy that was sitting up in, in you know, he didn't have a, a Prussian lounge like uh, like some of yeah. the romantics did, where he could kind yeah. of go and and wax philosophical and literary. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he, yeah. he is writing, he is writing in the world. And so I, I think we need to let Dante be, be human in some ways and, and yeah, maybe he just saw a bird and it really captured his imagination. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the risk of over-sophisticating things, I sort of felt like maybe the mind... So to me, the idea that anyone could read my mind is, like, horrifying. I mean, I can oh, yeah, think of almost absolutely. nothing that's worse. And that just shows that, you know, I'm, I'm still a messed up person. Like, I don't want people to know what I'm thinking because half the time it's right. stuff that's like I shouldn't be thinking. So... Right. <laughs> so maybe so like one thought that i had was like oh well if, you know if i were beatified like all my thoughts would be fine <laughs> so right. it wouldn't be it wouldn't feel like this violence <laughs> if someone could you know like we like okay yeah so maybe the idea is just that oh hey like we could have this much deeper intimacy if we all weren't like bad people anymore that that was one uh, thought but again that could be over sophistication oh but, yeah well there's this consistent theme in paradise in paradiso where it's not just about intimacy with god it's about the intimacy of the communion of saints and when uh dante is talking to 
Falco, I think, in Canto Nine. Um, so this is among the the lovers of love. Uh, Dante is again kind of pushing this this the lim beyond the limits of language by just making up words. And and Falco takes this kind of erotic imagery of of intimacy and and is talking about you know if I in you'd as much as as God in need right. There's this kind of intimacy in this proximity that maybe is being depicted in the. The ability of reading minds it's this this image of of the intimacy of of all souls with each other in within the intimacy of god right which maybe is only really possible you know in a in a much better condition than we could possibly hope for here oh absolutely okay so yeah i guess i just wanted you to say something about how beatrice has changed at this point just like a a, a general sense well, a lot of a lot of people don't like Beatrice in Paradiso. Uh, I heard one person, I, well, one person, one scholar kind of quipped that there's this attitude about Beatrice that she is uh, Thomas Aquinas in drag, that her, which is so insulting and demeaning. Uh, That's to, a very to, strange sentiment. <laughs> It's very strange, and it's so profoundly wrong uh, yeah. on top of being strange. Uh, but there's just this kind of idea that she's, her her role is as teacher and as scholar. Um, and so basically what she does is she just kind of educates Dante throughout the entire thing, uh, which I find just a, a, a profoundly reductive way of of reading her mm -hmm. um all of her all of her her role is is bound up in she she has been moved by love to bring dante to to god and that bringing dante to god is going to involve kind of moral formation of dante's character the end of purgatorio the intellectual formation of, of Dante's mind and his understanding, which we see here, but also the formation of his affections, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is one of the reasons why she keeps calling him brother. It's like, Dante, your, your kind of eroticism that, that runs through, through your early poetry, it doesn't have to be left behind, but it has to be transformed and transcended so that it can be uh, a kind of affect and uh, affectual desire um, for Beatrice as a, as a sign pointing to, to God. Uh, and I think so much of that is, is seen in all of the weird things that Dante does with Beatrice in numbers. From very early on, he associates her with the number nine. She is mentioned by name in the entirety of the comedy, um, uh, let's see, 63 times, because 6 plus 3 equals 9. 9, of course, is 3 plus 3, 33. She's this image of Christ. And so he's always trying to, to kind of wrap her up as, as how Christ comes to him and how through Beatrice, Christ is at work uh, on Dante in in these kind of formative roles. And so I think he, Dante is really kind of configuring Beatrice as 
as a kind of archetypal depiction of of the Christian, of the little Christ. Mm. Uh, and so to just kind of say, oh, she's just the kind of dogmatist is, mm -hmm. I, I think, to miss out on everything that Dante is trying to say about her. Yeah. Have you read McInerney's book on Dante and the Virgin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you disagree with him then? Because he sort of seems to see Beatrice not as pointing to Christ as she is to Mary. And sort of her role in, you know, by the time you get to paradise as more sort of motherly. Yeah. I, do you think that goes wrong? I, yeah, I don't, I don't read it that way. Um, I think mm -hmm. Mary is present enough, especially in Paradiso, like she's physically present, uh, in, uh, mm -hmm. Canto 23, she's invoked repeatedly. She's present again in it's Mary with which the, the, the final canto of the poem begins. So I don't yeah. think that Mary needs that. I don't think Mary needs Beatrice to play that role. Also, Dante only uses the word effigy uh, or image to refer to Christ and Beatrice. So he mm -hmm. links the two of them mm -hmm. um, linguistically. And when Beatrice first shows up uh, uh, in, in uh, Purgatorio 30, the, the angels and, and everybody, they, they say, uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord about her. So, I mean, the, the Christological links to Beatrice, I think, are, are much more explicit than the Marian links, uh, just mm. in terms of, of, of the text itself. Um, but there's this, her, her final farewell. She comes into the story in Purgatorio 30. She leaves the story in Paradiso 30. So of course you have 33 right. cantos where she's an active yeah. agent. There's another kind of Christological connection. Um, but when she, she disappears, his final image of her, he sees her up in the celestial rose kind of regained her seat, which is under Mary. So she is marrying mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, the, his final vision of her as she looks at him smiles, right? There's that kind of final smile. Uh, and then she turns and she looks again up at God. And I'm like, well, that's the entirety of her character here in some way. You get the smile, the beauty, the the beauty that draws Dante on. That is kind mm -hmm. of the lore of Dante throughout the entire thing. Um, like like we talked about last time in uh, Purgatorio 27. Hey, you want to walk through this fiery wall? Beatrice is on the other side. And uh, yeah. he dives on through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then what does she do? She turns and she looks to God. So the first image we have of Beatrice and the last image we have of Beatrice in Paradiso is this contemplative posture. And that's what Beatrice's beauty is to do, is to draw Dante along and then turn his attention, sign signifying um, the, the divine beauty and glory that she's an image of. Yeah. So this, <laughs> this idea that she's like some kind of scholastic... Uh, I don't know, Aquinas and Drag or, or whatever. She's like a cipher, yeah. Yeah, cipher. it's totally bizarre. But but there is this um, point in the poem where 
It's like Dante is invited by uh, some saints to basically do like a disputed questions mm-hmm. sort of thing, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be useful to talk about what on earth is, is going on there. I mean, Dante is like tested by St. Peter and St. James and I, I believe St. John yes. and about faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's worth kind of positioning us. We're in the realm of the fixed stars, which is just before Dante gets to the root of creation and the prima mobile. So we're in the last gasp of of the journey. And he kind of depicts this baccalaureate examination where he's examined on the, the theological virtues. And uh, I, th- so he's examined by faith by Peter, uh, hope by James, and love by John. And then he kind of tacks on an encounter with Adam uh, after his exam on love with, with John, oh, which, yeah. is, which is kind of interesting yeah. and, and strange. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But you would expect, okay, here we go. Here we go. Dante, this is, this is Dante. You get to prove everything that you've learned over the course of your journey. Um, and that's kind of how Beatrice sets this up. She says in Canto 24, uh, talking to Peter, test this man as you see fit on points both minor and essential about faith by which he walked upon the sea. Whether his love is just and just his hope and faith is not concealed from you because your sight can reach the place where all things are revealed. But since this realm elects its citizens by measure of true faith, it surely is his lot to speak of it that he may praise its glory. And so there's both there's both this uh, kind of examination, Dante, what have you learned? But it's done in the context of celebration too. Which if you think about it, I remember my uh, my PhD uh, defense. It was both a an examination, but it was an examination that was right through with, let's celebrate the work that you've accomplished here. Uh, yeah, okay, but like, I don't really, like when somebody asks me to think of heaven, I don't think of a PhD examination. <laughs> so. Fair. <laughs> but that might be more of an indictment of, uh, of PhD examinations than heaven. No, but seriously, I mean, you have this like scholastic ritual and one one wonders why this is necessary. One, because which doesn't really seem like fun, but two, it seems like the wrong kind of knowledge, right? So it's, it. I mean, like if he wanted to test my faith, hope, and love, mm-hmm. like for heaven purposes, I wouldn't think a disputed question would be the way to do it. Right. So what? Yes. And I think that's right. And, and I think this is where Dante's paradise is, is kind of showing how the closer he gets to God, the source of all created things, the more you get this kind of confluence of all forms of knowing. So you have this disputed question, Dante, what is faith? He gets kind of interrogated on some of his definitions. And then Peter says, okay, your answers are great. Um, it's well-measured, well-examined, well but, but do you possess it? Are you faithful? Are you hopeful? Are you loving? And so there's this there's this movement from do you have the right concepts of it into have you kind of configured your existence 
faithfully, yeah. hopefully, and lovingly. Uh, and yeah. and I, I like that Dante is holding those together because precisely because it's like, wait a minute, these are, seem like two different types of questions. And I think Dante would be like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, obviously, duh, that's kind of the point. Because the purpose of this of of, dispu of, of disp disputation is is wisdom, and the purpose of wisdom is is taste, and not to get all Bonaventurian on you again, but um, but but Bonaventure says to to know much, but to taste nothing. What is the point of that? And so I think Dante is is showing that that knowledge leads to love. And so in that sense, maybe he's being very uh, Thomistic in a sense. He's, he's demonstrating his knowledge uh, as, as a way of then kind of leading into his, his love. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sort of amused me, mm -hmm. nevertheless. <laughs> but <laughs> the, this would, and, it, and it does kind of, I guess it's a little bit of grist for this person's mill that Beatrice is in this role of scholastic, mm -hmm. you know, school marm or something. But she comes along and she says before Dante is examined on hope by James, she intervenes on his behalf and she says, you know, I need to let you guys know that there is no living man in church militant that has more hope than Dante does. So again, it's, it's these kind of interesting disruptions of mm -hmm. of what you would expect in a kind of straightforward scholastic disputation uh because again she was like examine him all you want but you need to know this is a man that has hope so it, it's mm -hmm. interesting that those are are brought together yeah so another another canto that we were gonna talk about if you still want to is canto 20. so that this, probably this takes a long do... time uh, okay, but, so we should skip it. Well, I'll I, I'll try to be uh, very brief on it. I just think we talk so much about Virgil, and it's the subtext is so Virgilian here. Yeah, this. that's great. Yeah. So, so let's get in the very short version of Canto Twenty. Okay, so Canto Twenty, Dante is among the just rulers who appear to him as uh, configured as a giant eagle. Um, and Dante looks into the eagle's eye and pays attention to the eagle's eyebrow that is made up of several different rulers who are all among the blessed, two of whom are, I think, meant to scandalize us a bit. You have the, the pagan, the virtuous pagan Trajan and the virtuous pagan uh, Eurypheus. And these are two people that do not belong among David and Constantine, depending on how you want to read Constantine. Uh, and Dante is shocked by these two pagans being, being saved. Uh, and so you have this kind of extended discourse in Canto 1920 on the question of the virtuous pagans. And of course the subtext is Virgil. Where's Virgil? Uh, what hope does Virgil have to be to be saved? Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. that's that's explicit because Dante's reference to Riffius is comes from Virgil. Uh, Riffius is a Trojan who is the most just, uh, but the gods, the pagan gods, don't look upon his justice. 
And so when he's killed in the war, he just, he dies and uh, as, as an enemy of the gods. So Virgil, very much the, the question here. Um, but it's Trajan that I think is, is very, very interesting for, for Dante's project, at least as it, it bears on the question of the virtuous pagans. So Dante pulls on this folk story. Thomas Aquinas talks about this folk story too, um, where Trajan dies and as a virtuous pagan, he goes down to limbo. And Pope Gregory the Great is so moved by Trajan's pagan sense of justice that he intercedes on God, he intercedes to God that God would raise Trajan from the dead so that so that Gregory can baptize him and Trajan can be saved. Mm -hmm. And God does. Trajan is baptized, immediately dies again, uh, and then doesn't go back to limbo, but goes directly into heaven. And mm -hmm. Dante is completely, Dante the Pilgrim is completely shocked by this. Uh, and the, the giant space eagle um, says to Dante, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence from fervent love and living hope. These conquer the very will of God, not as man may master man, but conquer it because it would be conquered. And once conquered, it conquers itself by its goodness. For from hell where no one may return to righteous will, this one came back into his bones, talking about Trajan, and this his reward for living hope, the living hope that furnished power to the prayers addressed to God to raise him from the dead so that his will might find its moving force. Mm -hmm. And so you have yeah. this precedent being set where, where uh, Gregory loves Virgil and admires his pagan virtue and prays and hopes for Virgil when Virgil, or excuse me, for Trajan, when Trajan couldn't hope for his own salvation because he's in hell, abandoned on hope, all you had are here. And so what we have is we have this person who's whose sense of love and mercy and um, hope have been so configured by Christ or to Christ that he prays and God, he prays and intercedes for Trajan and God responds to his prayer and Trajan is saved. And so the hope is that the same can be true for Virgil. I, I think Dante is at... I don't, he's not being prescriptive here. I think he's at least raising the question. Mm -hmm. um, planting the seed. He is planting, yeah. he is planting the seed. And I think there's also perhaps a, a kind of, because what follows this, what follows this is his faith, hope, and love uh, examination. And I think what Dante is perhaps posing is one, um, to, to us as readers, if we've been moved by people like Francesca, people like Ulysses, people like uh, Ugolino, has has our response been to pray for them, to intercede for them? Because that might be how God's eternal will for them and for their ultimate salvation translates into time and space through our prayers. Um, and then what kind of person do we need to become in order to pray in accordance with God's will? People of faith, hope, and love. 
but then I can't remember who I heard this from, but but it was was really striking. Uh, they suggested maybe part of what the Divine Comedy is is Dante's praise and prayer for Virgil translated into verse, mm. which I yeah. think is is it's just an it's an interesting thought. And it's interesting to think about this masterpiece of world literature in in such intimate friendship kind of language to, mm -hmm. to think about Dante actually loving Virgil and actually praying for Virgil. Um, there, mm -hmm. There's a kind of divine humanness in that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, last, last one. 33. 33. The very end. So yep. we, have, we haven't talked about why Beatrice gets replaced by Bernard. Um, okay, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you want to talk about a disappointment. Dante's going to turn around and see beautiful uh, Beatrice, coruscation of the soul's delight, and then it's this, like, old guy. Uh, very disappointing yeah. uh, for, for him. Yeah. But, but interesting that when Dante is seeing these people... In the Empyrean, he's seeing them in flesh. He's seeing them in bodies, not as lights, mm -hmm. which is different. Right. Um, right. So a lot of people wonder why Bernard. I, I, Bernard wrote on contemplation. Bernard wrote on prayer. And the whole ending of Paradiso is is kind of set up in, in terms of a prayer. But I think most of all, it's how deeply Marian Bernard is. And it's really Mary that is, is the architect of this entire journey um, because she's the one that sees Dante in the dark wood at the beginning. And it's to Mary that the final prayer uh, of the comedy is, is offered, right? That she would yes. ennoble him, ennoble Dante to be able to look into the, the face of God. Mm -hmm. And Dante talks about, I think this is in Canto 25, he talks about Mary as the fountain of hope for the church. And he talks about how, as he's writing this poem, he's dedicating the poem, or he's consecrating the poem day and night in prayer to Mary. So Mary really is the, the agent here of the entire divine comedy, which I think is, is significant. So I, that's my take on why it's Bernard, um, that kind of- Well, what is here. the significance of that? Is it sort of, I mean, there's a theology behind it, but mm -hmm. I just wonder if we could make it explicit. The, the Marian aspect of it, you think? Or? Yeah, like why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why is it really, why is it so focused on Mary? I mean, I do think there's a, there's the personal aspect, Dante's Marian devotion. I think there's the the theological virtue of of hope that Mary embodies and sources to to the church, right? Hope is really what Dante lacks at the beginning. It's what the inferno lacks. And so it seems significant that that Mary is in in some ways or the intercessions of Mary are um, are are so such play such a powerful role here. Um, but I also think that there's there's something mystical going on here, right? Mary is the mother of 
of the church and so much of the imagery starting in Eden at the end of Purgatorio is of mothering imagery and the return yeah. to childhood and poetry becoming baby talk and the longing of of the souls this is what the the theologians say that they long to be resurrected so that they can see their mamas again uh, so there's such a, a strong emphasis on that kind of m move back to to childhood and prayer uh, play and and that kind of intimacy with mother so those are all aspects i think of of mary a, a literary aspect of it is there's so much boat imagery here and you have mary you know stella maris um you know as as the star that guides people home to port yeah of sailors home to port so exactly yeah but also all throughout this poem there is this idea of um kind of like being lost at sea absolutely <laughs> you know and and yeah and so i think the idea of mary as you know the the star the, mm -hmm. the the thing that's gonna prevent you from just totally drifting away it's there at the yeah i love the, that it's there at the beginning of every part um you have the shipwreck the spiritual shipwreck in inferno one uh, the beginning of Purgatorio one, you have, uh, for better waters. Now my, the little ship of my song raises its sails. And then at the beginning of Paradiso two, you, you have Dante actually eschewing the, the Ulyssian ambition and, and just saying my, my little ship of my poem is going into deep waters. Now be careful about following me. So absolutely. Absolutely. There's that boat imagery all the way through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how, so, so we have the invocation of Mary and mm -hmm. that makes sense. Where does it end? So it ends with the beatific vision, uh, which I always call the, the three, the three visions of, of love for, for Dante. He, he looks into the light of God and the, the deeper he stares into it, the deeper his vision kind of penetrates and the image that he sees kind of shifts and changes. Uh, so the first thing he sees is the mystery of creation. He sees all creation as a book bound by love. Um, so I, th I think that that's something that's, that's really significant. He's trans his vision of what the world is that the world is god's love translated into time and space uh, then his vision penetrates deeper and he sees these three circling lights that all occupy the same space uh, which is the mystery of of god is love mystery of trinity um, mm -hmm. which his his description of god oh eternal light abiding in yourself alone knowing yourself alone and known to yourself and knowing you love and smile upon yourself. So it's interesting that Dante sees the divine life as a smile. And then he penetrates even deeper uh, uh, into, the, into this vision. And he sees in the second of those lights, he sees our image, right? Which is of course taken to be 
the incarnation. Um, he sees the mystery of the incarnation. But it's interesting that he doesn't name Christ explicitly. He he sees well. This is this is what Christ enables is is this kind of perfect union with God um, according to according to our nature. And Dante just wrestles with the theology of the of the incarnation. How could um, how could our humanity and divinity, how could the fullness of human nature and the fullness of divine nature can come together? Um, right, hypostatic doctrine of the hypostatic union. And then he gets it. He has this flash of understanding. And then he's like, but I can't really put it into words. But the important thing is that my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion, were turned by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And so that's how... The poem ends on this kind of profound, this profound mystery of how is it that that God and world can be reconciled in the person of Christ? He says there is an answer, but he can't provide it. But instead, he's moved by by love and harmony and in the proper order of, of God's creation. So my students, at least, are always like. We spent seven weeks on this book for him not to give us the final answer. Like, what the heck? They're so annoyed. Uh, they're typically pretty done with Dante at this point, but they're always like, couldn't he have given us just one more canto where he tells us what he sees? And my response is always, no. He would have done your work for you. He can't tell well, you. Well, I mean, but also, no, he can't. Right. I mean, he told you at the beginning right. it's beyond words. <laughs> right. So, like, right. he warned you. Right. right. So if you were still expecting that, then you didn't read carefully. Yeah. He but would, no, he, he couldn't. He would be Ulysses then. Like uh, he's talking about seeing something mm -hmm. that is be is not only beyond anything that we can see, but beyond anything that we could say, because right. it's beyond any concept that we could deploy mm -hmm. in our thought right. or our imagination. Like, and that's. I mean, that's why I said at the beginning, well, he's given himself an impossible task yes. here, right? But, I mean, I, I suppose, like, you know, the opening three lines and the last four lines are meant to be read together, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Or I guess the last three, three lines, mm -hmm. you know, because he just compares his vision to a wheel in perfect balance turning, mm -hmm. right? by the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. And in the very beginning, he says he's going to be talking about the one who moves all things. Right. Right. And that's like, obviously all you're going to get. I mean, I sort of feel like, I mean, I, in some sense, I share your student's sense of being like let down in a sense, mm -hmm. because, because of course you're going to be let down because there's nothing that Dante could say. <laughs> right. That's going to like, really get at right. his topic and so I think that's why I'm inclined to this to this reading of the poem that you know in a way it always has to reflect back on on us for sure like of necessity it just sort mm -hmm. of has to and and this idea of what what it's like to rest in the good the perfect mm -hmm. good right and I think then it's fitting 
that the final invocation would be of circular motion. Yep. So a wheel in perfect balance turning by his will and desire, right? But turning not of its own accord, but by the love that moves the sun and yeah. other stars. Right. I think that is in its own way, very apt, not as a description of what God is like, but of a description of what it would mean for us to rest. Yes. And whatever it is that God is like. And, and to know God. Uh, I, I think it's a, a great image of, of knowing, of knowing God, that, that knowledge of God has this, this effect, this ordering effect to us. It brings us into that, this harmony and this music of, mm-hmm. of all of creation, of, of what God's goodness looks like uh, in, as part of created reality. Yeah. And I think to me, the thing that is really attractive, I guess, or or really profound or important is just the idea that in the end, it's all about rest. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's all about delight, right? In the end, it's all about, it's not, you know, you're not striving anymore. You're not working anymore, right? right? That it's just delighting in what Mm -hmm. is perfectly good Mm. perfectly right in this continual motion in which at every moment of the motion it is perfected in itself right so there is no more progress there is no more striving there is only rest and 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 i think that's i i think that's worth like dwelling on that like mm. really what we're after is a kind of rest yes absolutely and very much and that's very much an Augustinian note as well, right? Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the end of confessions is God is God's own rest. Um, yeah. Which I think is, yeah. is very fitting. What strikes me is that Dante doesn't get to rest, right? He has this vision. He has to go back and write the poem. Yeah, um, which is weird. It, it is weird. <laughs> and even part of the prayer to Mary is, hey, preserve him in holiness. Yeah. Yeah, don't let him fall. Yeah, right. it is. And no, so, it is kind of horrifying. Can you imagine? Like, no, it, it would be such a bummer. Just the whole conceit of it. It's like, oh, yeah, we've been to heaven, but see you later. Good luck. Right. We'll be praying for you. It's like, oh, my goodness. But it it <laughs> reminds me of of the first scene with Beatrice in Inferno 2, where Beatrice goes to Virgil and gets this whole party started by sending Virgil to Dante. And Virgil says, what are you doing here? And she says, love moves me and causes me to, to speak. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a, we've been building up to this from the very yeah. opening of the poem. Dante now is moved by God, by, by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And now he is compelled to speak. That is to speak in the verse of the poem, which I think is, yeah. is very interesting. Yes. Well, speaking of rest, I, I, have, I have one great, great line that I think would be uh, a good way to end, if you don't mind. Okay. This I is, don't mind at all. This is, I think, one of the best lines for for reading the Divine Comedy. It comes from um, Peter Hawkins at Yale Divinity School. He says, "You have nothing to lose by coming to the comedy, except perhaps life as you have known it thus far." And that's how I always end my time with Dante is kind of chewing on that, that quote and what it would it mean yeah. to read Dante 
in that way. I think it's true. And I would also just say for our listeners, you know, it's the kind of poem that you should read more than once, for sure. And and the great thing about a poem is that you don't have to read the whole thing in <laughs> one sitting, right? Once you see the whole, you can go back to different parts and just sit with it. It's the, look, it's a great text, which means that it's always beneficial to go back for it. And yeah, anyway, thank you for revisiting this with me because it was incredibly beneficial for me and just really fun. It was fun. And it was great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or find us on Spotify or over on the app Lyceum. And of course, you can also follow the podcast on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod and we're also on Facebook sacred and profane love. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes and also please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash to become a monthly patron. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their generous support. My deepest gratitude goes to Brendan Allen, Carl Hoodgren, Albert Kai, Joaquin Vargas, Marjorie Cordman, Ken Wilson, Julian Speezy, Matthew Pierce, Matthew Dean, John Ayler, Jake Leonin, Kit Johnson, Arturo Adame, Chris Woods, Andrew Sands, Ian Benson, Tom Angier, Joel Kalina, Martin W. Simcha Lapp, David McIver, Daniel Cliven, Lisa Perkins, Bryce Azell, Mikhail Brockman, Ronald Ridgely, AJ Ravikandran, Matthew von Schultz, Suzanne M, Javier Mazarigos, Elizabeth Bristol, Julia Morris, Grant Scalf, Chris Hannaway, Mary Costanza, William Swee, Nuri Sikenen, Alan Efrig, Philip James, Tyler Van Wolven, Greg Selmach, Colin Tolfelmeyer, Michaela Steiner, and Kyle Tyson. If I bungled your name, please, please, please forgive me. I am really grateful for your support. For our next episode, I will be joined by Morton Hoy Jensen to talk about the greatest novel you haven't read, and that is Niels Luna by Jens Peter Jakobsen. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.